So we're going to be looking at uh, Song of Songs starting at chapter 3, verse 1, through to chapter 5, verse 1. And as Sam Samwise reminded us, this is a dialogue between a man and a woman who are completely committed to one another. And so we start the dialogue with the woman speaking. All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city, through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let go till I brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by sixty warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple. Its interior laid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out. And look, you daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. And now the man says, How beautiful you are, my darling, oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing, each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon, your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like four twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amarna, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart, 
with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And the woman speaks again. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And he replies, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh, my spices. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And their friends say, eat. Friends and drink. Drink your fill of love. Thank you so much, Jim, and good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Cam Maxwell. I'm one of the staff uh, here, and if we haven't met, I hope to uh, get a chance to do that over morning tea in a moment. Um, and I'm the, also the COVID marshal today, so there's a great uh, platform here to be able to see you all, make sure you're uh, doing all the safe things you need to do. Um, can I start by saying, though, how great it is to be all in the same room together as we pick up again in a uh, series in the Song of Songs? I have to say, preaching on a book with uh, such romantic and intimate themes uh, like this and live uh, with you guys is by far and away more comfortable than the alternative. Uh, just me uh, in a room with a camera and Matt Lehman. Uh, <laughs> especially if he was wearing a kilt, I feel like would be uh, avoiding eye contact for months. Uh, so it's lovely to be with you all. I should warn you, though, that last time we uh, yeah, tried to start on the Song of Songs, the last time I preached on this book, uh, the very next week, church shut down for about six months, um, probably due to COVID, but it did make me wonder a few points whether there was some not-so-subtle feedback that that sermon was pretty terrible. So it's, uh, it's nice to be here to have another go at it today. Uh, it has been a very long time since we looked at this part of the Bible together, um, Sermon 1 in this series. So if you can, if you were here and can remember back about one pandemic ago, uh, all the way back, uh, that was a sermon really introducing this book, uh, this part of the Bible that is uh, sadly uh, rarely getting a chance to see uh, the light of day in churches. Uh, so I would recommend if uh, you're able to get online and have a look at or listen to that sermon uh, from about six months ago on our website. Uh, it kind of introduces some of the themes and big ideas, which will be helpful because we have today and another two weeks in this series. Uh, for today, though, it has been a while, of course, so uh, let me start by reintroducing uh, this part of the Bible, uh, the Song of Songs. especially want to uh, just remind us what this book is about and uh, why it's in the Bible. Because even if we uh, don't know the Bible particularly well, uh, as Jim was reading there, I'm sure you would have picked up, uh, this is a pretty different part of the Bible uh, to what we see elsewhere. Uh, there's no mention of God in this book. Uh, there's no uh, mention of the history of Israel or God-saving work in our world. It's just poetry. Uh, it is just ancient romantic poetry. That's what it is. Well, actually, uh, it is what it says it is. 
That is, it's a song. It's a set of lyrics. It's not just any song, though, is it? It's the song of songs, you know, the greatest of songs is the idea. Uh, we simply get to listen on as two lovebirds tell each other how they feel. And so you might wonder, well, maybe it's some kind of manual on how to have a healthy and happy marriage. Well, uh, husbands, you can put that to the test. Uh, see how you go telling your wife that her hair reminds you of goats. See if that's good for your marriage or not. I think it's, it's relatively clear it's not just a manual for marriage. Uh, there are some wonderful insights about relationships, uh, and they'll be very valuable to sort of uh, pick out some of those things as we go through this series. Through this series. Uh, what this book is, though, is most clearly a celebration. It's a celebration of exclusive romantic love. So even if we don't understand every lyric uh, in this song, uh, it's clear enough, and often at points a little bit too clear maybe, uh, it's clear enough that this is a song of celebration. And so to help us get a sense of how this book works, um, as Jim has mentioned, this, this seems to be a song about a normal everyday couple, as a man and a woman. We saw in Sermon 1, he seems to be a shepherd. The young lady, she's grown up working in the fields, in the vineyards, uh, as a farmhand, that sort of thing. So just two normal everyday people. Well, the confusing thing then is, well, what do we make of King Solomon? Uh, right in verse 1 of chapter 1, we see uh, this is Solomon's Song of Songs. His name pops up a few times uh, throughout the book. Uh, for instance, we saw that in chapter 3 here. Um, by the way, it'd be great to keep your uh, Bible readings uh, handy if you're able. Uh, if you don't have one in your seats, you can probably steal one from a vacant seat nearby. Um, but Solomon, uh, he was probably one of uh, the... He is, he is famously Israel's most successful, uh, most wealthy prosperous king. Uh, he was famous for his wisdom and his poetry and his songwriting, so it's, it's possible that he wrote this, or at least wrote part of this song. But uh, it seems unlikely to me that Solomon, who we know had 700 wives and another 300 concubines, it just seems unlikely to me that he would write a song celebrating exclusive relationships. It also seems unlikely that he'd be the main character in it. So I don't think this is about Solomon, it's possibly written by him, uh, but I think what's going on with the references to Solomon uh, is, it's helpful to remember this is a song, it's poetry, it uses uh, symbols and images. So, uh, what's going on in this song, I'll, I'll show you a bit more how it works in a second. But the idea with Solomon is that as the woman talks about her man, who's a normal shepherd, but not to her, when she sees her man, she thinks of the most wonderful, uh, royal, majestic, wise, honourable uh, king. She thinks of Solomon. It's, it's a poetic device, I think, is what's going on as we see Solomon. Why is this book in the Bible? That's probably a more important question to be uh, thinking about. It's, it's odd. Uh, let's just put that out there. It's an odd book. Why is it in the Bible in the first place? Uh, what I touched on in our first sermon was, I think in the first place, it's here to show us uh, that God is very good. God is very good. He gives us very good things uh, to enjoy. Uh, not just sex, as we see in this book, but everything good in our world uh, reflects God's kindness and His uh, creativity. So what I spoke about last time about why this book is in the Bible is that it's here to help us turn to God in thanks and in praise and to join in the celebration of the song because He's wonderful. The second major reason I think this book is in the Bible is that it does give us profound and helpful insights into very important parts of our life, like sexual desire and marriage. And so as we go through this book, we'll have some encouragement from these insights about how to live wisely in the world God has made. Today, though, uh, there is a third purpose for this book that I want to spend a bit of time on, a third purpose for today. I think part of the reason this book is in the Bible is that it helps us know what our desires and longings are there for. 
I think this book helps us know what our desires and longings are there for. Now, that would be a very helpful thing for all of us, uh, because unlike the couple in this book uh, who seem to have the perfect ideal relationship in every way, well, we all live in the real world, don't we? Our relationships are all far from perfect. Our own desires lead us into temptation and problems and sin. And all of us know of unfulfilled longing, of frustration and heartache. So today, as we have a look at how desire works in this book, how it's sort of a a main theme, uh, we're going to have a bit of a look at that, and then we're going to step back from the Song of Songs and think about how, uh, in the entire Bible, uh, what does that have to say about this topic of desire and longing? I'm going to consider how sexual desire in the song, it points us to something far better, far better than romantic bliss. So if you have those uh, those handouts uh, nearby, let's have a look at this relationship. Uh, which, as I've said, is basically an idealised picture of romance. Um, There's no mention of uh, changing nappies or doing the dishes, that's a pretty, uh, yeah, which is often not appearing in love songs, I think. So what we're looking at today, it seems to be the ideal part of the ideal romance. I think we're looking at the wedding day in chapters 3 and 4. It's a build-up to the wedding day, or I think, uh, more importantly, it sort of seems to build up in chapter 4 to the wedding night. So, in the first few, chapters, uh, first few verses of chapter 3, which unfortunately I'll ever, forever hear in a Scottish accent after this morning, uh, the first few verses of chapter 3, I think these are probably set the night before the wedding. Uh, we have the woman in her bed, she's tossing and turning all night, she's wishing her man was with her, but he's not. Uh, there's excited anticipation, she can't sleep or rest until she finds him, so she goes searching for him, and she finds him, and then suddenly that's kind of the end of the scene. So the thing about these verses is that they have a pattern, uh, the same pattern we see all throughout this song. I'll tell you what the pattern is in a second, but I want you to go and actually check this pattern out for yourself. It would be great to read through the book of Song of Songs, uh, perhaps an activity for your next date night, if, uh, if that's helpful. But here's the pattern we keep seeing in the song. Uh, in each sort of little section of the song, it starts with a couple being separated by something, they're apart. They express their great longing and desire and they move towards each other uh, and they're moving towards an intimate moment. But the song kind of interrupts them all the time. Uh, The song keeps interrupting that intimacy time and time again before we see their longings satisfied, as it were. So it's a pattern we see all through this book, longing and separation, and just as they sort of get together and lean in for the kiss, the kiss they've been dreaming of and, and imagining, suddenly there's a new scene, there's a new problem, there's new separation. Now, I mention that because I think it's quite helpful to see that in a book that oozes with desire and longing, there's a structure that kind of keeps that longing and that frustration, uh, that desire for satisfaction, it keeps delaying it uh, just a little bit longer, just a bit longer, just a bit longer. It sort of builds attention. And that attention sort of reaches a high point here in chapter 3. So after she finds him in the city and is really excited, uh, she's found him, this is great, verse 4, she wants to take him back to my mother's house, uh, to the room of the one who conceived me. Now that's a pretty romantic thought, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> Let's not spend too much time on that one, thinking through what it means. I'm sure it was a very alluring thought uh, at the time. For today, let's just say her intentions here are very clear. She wants to go to bed with him. But just as she uh, as has her man, she's heading to her mother's room, don't think about it, uh, suddenly, verse 5 comes out of nowhere. It sort of interrupts this intimate moment uh, with a public announcement. What a great way to kill the vibe, just a public announcement on your way uh, to the bedroom. Uh, chapter 5, uh, sorry, verse 5 here in chapter 3 is one of these lines that gets repeated a number of times throughout this song. It's a regular line, and it's an important one. Chapter 3, verse 5. 
daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So it's a warning, isn't it, that verse? It's a warning about how powerful and how strong desire and romantic love are. They're very powerful things. They can completely dominate us and set the course for our life. And so the warning here is, be very, very careful. Be very careful how we allow our desires to be fanned into flame and what we do with them. I'll come back to this again uh, because uh, it's important, but suddenly, again, there's another change of scene in verse 6. And this new scene, it has that same pattern I mentioned. It starts with a couple apart, they're separated, uh, moving towards each other. And this time, I think what we're seeing in chapter 3, verses 6 onwards, uh, what we see is a wedding procession. It's perhaps a bit confusing because suddenly we see it's Solomon on his way, it would seem. Uh, Solomon's carriage is what we're told is on the way. Uh, But as you read on, it's not entirely clear that it's Solomon himself in the carriage. It could be. uh, But I think what's going on here is it's the woman who's in Solomon's carriage. I think that's the picture. Part of the reason I say that is it... um, as Jim sort of pointed out for us, the speaker does change regularly throughout this book. It's he, he speaks, she speaks, sometimes a narrator speaks. Uh, what's difficult is working out from the original text when that um, speaker changes. Other translations of the Bible than the one we've printed here, other translations start at verse 6 with a narrator speaking, as if it's a bird, bird's eye view of a, a new scene with Solomon's carriage approaching. Uh, and so it's a, perhaps a narrator rather than the woman speaking at this point. And now, it doesn't make a, a big difference, but I think what we're seeing here is an narrator describing the woman being carried along as a princess towards her prince, who is standing, in verse 11, he's standing there waiting for her, in verse 11. So, uh, to all the aspiring brides here today, uh, I know you, uh, many of you have a pretty standard picture of what you would like, uh, which often includes uh, the beautiful white wedding dress, uh, walking down a long church aisle, beautiful church aisle, uh, escorted by your father and perhaps a few friends. You could do that. Or... You could be carried along by a carriage, having servants carry you along. A carriage uh, made by your man. He poured himself into it, he spared no expense, he's got the finest wood of Lebanon, Uh, he's laid it with silver and gold and purple velvet, might sound tacky but it's not. Uh, He's he's made it beautiful and the interior, wait for this, is inlaid with love. That's a nice carriage to ride in, isn't it ladies? And instead of a few squirts of perfume on the way out the door, the whole city can smell you coming a mile off, uh, with all the myrrh and incense and enough spice to fill a ship. Uh, It makes you smell, I guess, kind of like a spice market. What's not enticing about that? Your dress? uh, Well, sure, you can pick a white one, but needless to say, she's dressed up as a princess here. Everyone who sees her knows she's the princess. She's wearing a crown. The whole city will come out to look and behold her. Your dad walking you down your aisle? Sure, you could do that. How about 60 armed warriors, this SAS troops, trained to kill, armed to the teeth? Because nothing says romance quite like your own private army taking you to the wedding, does it? I think we've been doing it all wrong, guys. What we're watching here, I think, is a royal wedding procession. It makes, I think, the Harry and the Megan kind of wedding look a bit boring. See the, the woman coming on Solomon's carriage, and verse 11, the camera sort of pans around and focuses on King Solomon in all his royal glory, standing there in his crown, waiting for his bride, his princess. But remember, this song is about just an ordinary couple. So why this royal procession? What's going on? Well, I take it this whole wedding procession is what's happening in their eyes. As they see each other, this is what they see. The shepherd to his bride. He doesn't look like a shepherd. He looks like Solomon, the king in all his glory. 
And for, uh, for the, farm hand, and the, sorry, the farmhands to the groom, well, he sees the most famed, beautiful princess in the land, beyond all worth. Even if everyone else watching on just sees an ordinary couple getting married, well, they see royalty. And that was common enough, uh, kind of uh, symbol and imagery in the time. Apparently, it was common practice for brides and grooms to wear crowns or something like that on their wedding day to, to sort of symbolise this kind of thing. So, the procession sees the couple coming together, uh, and yet again, just as they are joined, it seems like they've, uh, the procession's finished, suddenly there's a new scene. Uh, they don't sort of get to join at this point. Suddenly we get to chapter 4, and the guy just starts talking and talking and talking. What's he doing? <laughs> the anticipation, perhaps, kind of builds throughout this chapter as it builds towards the intimate times. It reads very much, I think, like chapter 4 is the song of the wedding night. He starts, verse 1, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. He sees her. He sees her and he is just blown away. And then he expresses just uh, how he feels in quite romantic words. Your eyes are fat and fluffy little birds. Your hair is like goats, of course, famous for their great aroma and their elegance. Your teeth are kind of off-white and fluffy and wet like sheep, that's great. But hey, at least you've got all your teeth. Uh, No one is alone, that's good, you've got a full set, that's wonderful. Your lips are reddish, that's great. Uh, And your head reminds me of mostly useless fruit, pomegranates. It's uh, it's very romantic. But my favourite, your neck is really, really big and strong. That's uh, very, very flattering. As you can tell, uh, by the way, romantic poetry is not exactly my strong suit. Um, but the, bride, the groom here, as he looks at his bride, he, he tells her how much he appreciates every part of her. Make of this what you will, but uh, he spends um, about one verse for each feature he admires, admires but then he gets carried away and devotes two full, expansive verses as he talks about her breasts in verses 5 and 6. And he kind of then just forgets what he was talking about and changes topic a bit and sums it all up. Verse 7, you're altogether beautiful, my darling, there is no flaw in you. And before we kind of keep pushing on, it's probably worth pausing briefly and see how this models something helpful for us. Uh, firstly, kind of funny language for us in many ways, but what we see about his language and the, the care and concern he, how he puts into it is it shows us this is not about lust. It's language that is far from crude, it's respectful, it's not objectifying. In fact, as the groom looks at his bride, he sees that she is unique, she is an individual, and she is uniquely delightful to him. He loves her just exactly how she is, She's not simply an object for gratification for him. He sees her and appreciates her, the individual, the unique one. Now, that's so different, isn't it, to uh, the kind of things that our world seems to value? Take, for instance, uh, Instagram or social uh, media platforms like it. It seems to me the whole point of Instagram is to be admired for who we are. Uh, It's kind of like an affirmation machine, isn't it? You put an image out, people like it, that's what it's all about. And yet, of course, it's not really ourselves, it's not a real image we're putting up online uh, when we use Instagram, it's a carefully selected image, isn't it? It's got the right angle, maybe we've taken the photo five or six times, we've got the lighting just right, the angle just right, then of course we've got the filters on to get rid of all the flaws and bits we don't like, and then we see if people like it. I think uh, one thing we learn from the obsession we seem to have with Instagram is just how deep uh, the desire to be desired is for all of us. We desperately want to be desired. So here in the song, I think is a model of being vulnerable, of being seen for who we really are and being really affirmed, being adored and desired. 
Verse 7, he says, there is no flaw in you. Of course you had flaws, everyone has flaws, but the adoration here, it doesn't see the flaws, or better still, he actually thinks her gigantic, powerful neck is kind of cute. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of, uh, of intimacy, but that's it, it's an idealised picture of intimacy within marriage. It's something, I guess, for all those of us who are married, to keep aspiring to, to keep being seen, uh, to keep being vulnerable on the one hand, on the other hand, to keep choosing to see nothing but an individual, unique perfection. Keep affirming and adoring the person as they are. I think this is being modelled to us. Well, uh, the anticipation and the longing seems to grow and grow as this uh, chapter goes on. So from verse 8, things really move along as he invites his bride to be with him. As he goes, he keeps expressing how delightful she is. There's this, this great line in verse 10, How much more pleasing is your love than wine? and the fragrance of her perfume than any spice. He's, he's infatuated, isn't he? But I think the feature I want to point out in this chapter that stands out is the way he celebrates her exclusiveness. Her exclusiveness. So in verses 8 and 9, I think that's uh, when he's talking about mountains and lions, then it's kind of his way of saying, you're inaccessible, no one can touch you. And now he's asking for that access. In verse 12, I think we see it more clearly as he celebrates that she is a locked garden uh, or a, um, a sealed fountain or an enclosed spring. The idea seems to be here that the delights of intimacy, uh, it seemed to him, it looks great. It looks like uh, a garden with a fountain in the middle of the desert and it's, it's just for him. Her body is just for him, his own garden of delights. Of course, she feels the same way about him but here he's, he's, he's celebrating the privacy and the exclusiveness of this relationship. It's beautiful. It's intimate. He sees her, he adores her, he knows her, and she is known by him. But it's just for the two of them. And what we see being prized and celebrated and valued here is chastity, or a monogamy, to use a perhaps old-fashioned words. Uh, we describe that as being only sexually involved with one person, uh, our spouse. That kind of concept is not only not celebrated in our world, it's often outright ridiculed. And yet this type of celebration and kind of the beauty uh, and the poetry it's, is used to, to talk about the value of that, uh, that union, it talks about the value of sex, it celebrates it as something good and important. To me, I think this makes one of the best cases in the Bible that uh, God's plans for sex are far better than any alternatives that we come up with. So there is value and celebration here in a union that is exclusive because it's in the context of commitment. There's been a commitment, a commitment made to know and to be known, which brings with it the possibility of being vulnerable, being vulnerable and yet still being loved and adored, being affirmed. That is the kind of sex worth valuing because that is what marriage brings, that kind of commitment. That's why, of course, as we read through the rest of the Bible and we read about how God um, puts safeguards and guards around marriage and sex, He does it to protect something valuable and precious. I should say as well that uh, if you're listening to this as someone who isn't a, a committed follower of Jesus, you're here just checking things out, uh, or perhaps you haven't thought much about uh, what the Bible says about sex or you just don't like what the Bible says about sex, firstly, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, I know uh, for most Australians, the thought of going and listening to a talk about sex at church probably isn't a great, um, a great idea for a Sunday morning out, but so thank you uh, for being here with us. Uh, but you, can I put it this way? I'd genuinely like to know if you think uh, that what we see here is a compelling picture of God's design for sex. Is it compelling? 
do you think that uh, this kind of celebration might even uh, paint a picture that's even better than the one that our culture endorses? I'd love to hear from you if that's, uh, if that's of interest to you. Because we see here that sex is treated as something that's precious and valuable, but it's, not also, it's also not an unobtainable ideal. Now, I hope to explore that idea a bit more next week about why God's plans for sex and for marriage are really good. And that really, I think our culture is missing out by dismissing or trying to move on from uh, God's, uh, God's desires for marriage. For today, though, uh, here is the important thing for all of us. What do we do about the fact that we live in the non-ideal world? Here we are, looking at an idealised relationship. Uh, but for all of us, longing and desire doesn't always end like it does for the couple here at the start of chapter 5. If you uh, saw that, it was in no uncertain but very respectful and discreet poetic terms. Uh, it's no uncertain terms that they enjoy their wedding night. It's a full sensory delight. There's a satisfaction, as it were, for their longing. So how is that helpful for us who live in the real world? Uh, whether it be singleness or separation or divorce, perhaps being widowed or at a stage of life where desire isn't what it once was. Perhaps being in a marriage uh, that is struggling, or the ongoing frustration of unwanted desires, or the guilt or shame of uh, allowing those desires to lead us into temptation yet again. If nothing else, uh, just like for this couple actually, if nothing else, well for all of us, there is only one wedding night, isn't there? What what does desire and healthy relationship look like uh, for the rest of their married life as dishes and nappies just become reality? Now, on my wedding day, and oh, don't worry, this is a family-friendly story, it's okay, um, probably should say, during the wedding ceremony at my wedding, uh, that would probably avoid giving Karina a heart attack if she was here, um, our friend who married us, as he does make a habit of doing it at weddings, what he does is he gets the groom to take a moment and to turn and look at his bride uh, and see how beautiful she is and radiant with, uh, with the hair and the makeup and the dress, and just, just drink it in and just enjoy looking at uh, how beautiful she is. He then gets the bride to do the same, look at the groom, and says, well, look, he's scrubbed up okay, I guess, slightly better average uh, than average for him. Uh, and then he goes on to say, well, neither of you are going to look this good again. <laughs> it's never going to be as easy to love each other than on your wedding day, is the point he goes on to make about uh, the importance of marriage. He's not very romantic, perhaps. Um, Jeff Lynn, by the way, if you're wondering who it was. The point here, of course, is that we simply live in the real world. We all read this song knowing full well desire and satisfaction has its limits. And of course, it's frustrations and uh, being unmet so often. Sometimes great sadness. And so as we read uh, the groom at the start of chapter 5 saying he has eaten his honey and and he has drank his milk, he's in no uncertain ways uh, saying how much he's satisfied by having sex with his bride. He's enjoying that. And yet strangely, that particular language of milk and honey it reminds us, if we know the, sort of the broad sweep of the Bible, uh, it reminds us of a very important theme, the theme of being unsatisfied, a theme of unfulfilled longing. So the language of milk and honey should make us think of uh, what God promised to Israel as he led them towards the promised land, the land of milk and honey. It's the language of paradise, of, of indulgence and uh, delight. The groom gets there in this, in this song, but we know from the rest of the Bible, we're not in paradise. We're not in the land of milk and honey. Not yet. So I think one of the reasons this book is in the Bible is to make us realise we're not there yet. No one uh, can read this and think, well, this book perfectly describes my life, pure bliss, all day, every day. Of course not. 
Perhaps we all would like it to be like that. But as we read this, we're reminded, perhaps painfully, that there is far more still to come. We have not entered the promised land yet. And so as God's people, our wedding night, so to speak, our wedding night still awaits. Now, it's not just about sexual desire at that point. It's, it's far deeper than that. Because our deepest desires are to, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved by our Creator. Those great desires, they will not be fulfilled in this world. What that means is that uh, as a church, one appropriate response to this book is actually lament. It might seem strange when a book of celebration, an appropriate response is lament, but in the sweep of the Bible, I think that's appropriate. As we think about what it means that we are a part of a church together, a church where we want to share life with each other and really look after each other and uh, care well for each other, that's the church we want to be, then it should never be a secret that frustrations and temptations and sin and betrayal and hurt, all those things make up our stories. And so God has given us each other to share those things. To not pretend that our life and our marriage and our singleness are all great, everything's fine, but to share our struggles with one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to comfort one another, but especially to keep pointing one another to what is still in store for all of us. Of course, this world is not ideal, and our desires and our frustrations, perhaps especially our frustrations, they help us look forward to what's still to come. So God gave us marriage and sexual desire to help us understand a much bigger reality. Again, so stepping back and thinking about the way the Bible fits together, the Bible history starts with a wedding, doesn't it, Uh, in the Garden of Eden. History will finish uh, with a wedding, the great wedding. In Revelation 21, we read about um, a great event describing God's people finally seeing Him face to face, being with Him. It's described as a wedding. It might sound strange, but history is all heading towards the day uh, when Christ and His church are united face to face in the true promised land. That wedding is the true wedding of history, the coming together of Christ and His bride, the church. On that day, we'll look back and we'll realise every other wedding we've been part of, or everything we've seen at a wedding, was all simply a shadow. It's all pointing forward to this great, true wedding, where we're joined, where we're united forever with our Creator, our Saviour and our King. I realise, of course, there's a bit of a thought shift we have to make to go from a passage on sexual union uh, to talking about a better union of being uh, united with Christ. There's some uh, strange kind of thoughts to have to work through there. But that is ultimately what we're all looking forward to. It's what we're looking forward to far more uh, than a wedding, is seeing Jesus face to face. That is what his people deep down truly long for. One writer puts it like this, and I'll have this uh, pop up on the screen. God gave us sex to arouse and satisfy our hunger for intimacy. Sexuality arouses a desire for union. Sexual consummation satisfies that desire but it also mysteriously creates a hunger for more. Not only for more sex, but also for a taste of ultimate union, the final reconciliation with God. The Song of Songs asks us to identify our longings and our desires. It taps into some of our deepest uh, human desires, the desire to be known for just who we are, the desire to be loved without having to sort of cover up or pretend otherwise, and of course, the desire to be truly united with someone, Someone committed to us who sees us as perfect and desirable and flawless. 
Those desires, uh, I realize it might sound strange this is the first time we sort of thought about, but those desires are there because of the deepest need we have to be known and to be united with our Creator. Our greatest need is a relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. I think it's the amazing thing about Jesus. Uh, he knows all the ways we are flawed. He knows the times that uh, our desires have run away from and uh, run away unchecked. He knows our sexual history and our lives. He knows it all. And still, His love is so great, He died for us. See, Jesus sees us as we truly are. Like it or not, uh, we are all vulnerable before Jesus. We are, I guess, naked and exposed in the truest sense before Him. And yet... When we go to Jesus for forgiveness, we are washed clean by His blood. And He sees us as perfect, as flawless and beautiful. In this non-ideal world, as we make our way to that true promised land, the eternal joy of being with Jesus, we're not promised that our our desires will be satisfied. We're not even promised that our desires will always be good and pure. In fact, we know and experience the exact opposite a lot of the times. And so our task is to keep going to Jesus in our struggles. He knows our struggles. He was entirely human in every way. He can sympathize with us in our weakness. He can identify with those of us who are single. He knows what it was like to not be known, the feelings of not being adored. He felt that. He is the man of sorrows. So we can and we must keep taking those things to Jesus. And as we do, let those frustrations, those pains, those longings, let them remind us we're not there yet. Perhaps because of our frustrations, our longings, let us keep fixing our eyes on that day, the great wedding day of history. We saw the lovers in the Song of Songs. We see them being kept apart time and time again, but they are ultimately uh, brought together in their union. As they're separated, though, their desire grows, their longing intensifies. So let's that, let that be our, our story. Let us keep growing in our longing to see Jesus face to face. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks um, for just how kind you are and so generous and creative and wise. You've given us so many good things in our world to enjoy, to delight in and to be satisfied by. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you know and you experience uh, the painful reality that our world is broken. We thank you that you know and experience all the same frustrations and temptations and unfulfilled desires that we do. We thank you, Jesus, for the links you went to for us, even bearing the shame of the cross, because you do know us and because you love us. So please help us all keep seeking the truest satisfaction in knowing you and being known by you. And please keep growing in us all a longing to see you, fixing uh, fixing our eyes on that wonderful day when you make all things new. I will see you face to face. Amen.